Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Dr. Marcina Shamri about the political crisis in Iraq. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dr. Marcin Shamri is a research fellow with the Middle East Initiative at Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. After earning her PhD from MIT, she was a postdoctoral fellow with the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution until earlier this year. Marcin, thanks for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much, John. Can you briefly describe the standoff that's going on now outside of Iraq's parliament? Do you think we're at serious risk of violence? Where Iraq is right now is Muqtada Sadr, who everyone remembers from the early 2000s as being the leader of the Shia opposition to the American occupation. He has since then transformed into a political leader, has a pretty large following, and actually won the largest number of seats in the election. During the election, he tried to set up a system where he and his allies were the majority in parliament and where everyone else was in opposition. He wasn't able to do this because since 2005, Iraq's political system has mainly resulted in a consensus parliament and a consensus government. And the number of seats that any single party is able to win has never been a large enough majority that they can actually form a government by themselves without the need to form alliances with everyone else. So he tried to do this by actually alienating his political rivals, which happened to be from the same religious group as he, but he wasn't able to do so. And so in response to that, he actually asked his parliamentarians to resign. And he said that he was leaving parliament and is going to be seeking other ways to influence what's happening in Iraq. He left parliament and I think he expected that everyone would come after him and beg him to not leave and bring back his parliamentarians. But actually what ended up happening is that they moved on with the process and they nominated a prime minister and they swore in new MPs to take over the positions that the Sadrists had left vacant. And he, I think, was so surprised that they moved on and didn't ask him to come back that at the moment that the prime minister candidate was even announced as a potential He decided to stage protests in the green zone, which is a heavily fortified area that months of protesting in the past, people weren't able to breach it. But the Sadrists were able to breach it a few weeks ago very easily. And they've been occupying the parliament building and the surrounding area since then. And to be honest, I was in Baghdad back when it happened. Everyone was so worried that this would devolve quickly into a Shia-Shia civil war. Because Sadr's opponents were clearly the members of the armed paramilitary groups associated with Shia political parties. You know, the Shia political parties all solidified into this group called the Coordination Framework. And this is under the leadership, arguably, of former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. So this is how it's always presented. It's under the leadership of Nouri al-Maliki because Nouri al-Maliki is Sadr's nemesis. But in reality, the thing that makes Shia politics so unique and what makes it actually hard to fall into civil war, despite our concerns about it, is that it's a multipolar system. There isn't really one person who can claim that they're the head of the Shia whether the coordination framework within it or just broadly. And I think that's really what aggravates Muqtada Sadr. 
Now that Iraq doesn't really have existential external crises like ISIS, like Kurdish secessionism, everyone is looking within their ethno-religious group and their ethno-sectarian group to be able to become the leader of that group. So Sadr really wants to monopolize the Shia of Iraq. And he thought he would be able to do this by being the top guy in government. And when he wasn't, he sought the streets and is trying to destabilize and to honestly break down the political system that we have now. And according to him, we need to rethink everything, including the constitution and the electoral system. But because it's such a multipolar world, it makes it hard for one person to emerge as the leader of the Shia, which is good if you're trying to avoid authoritarianism. But it's also difficult in the sense of when you need to engage in dialogue, there's many actors. And what we're seeing now is most of the Shia actors are coalescing into the coordination framework. Noreen Maliki is a very important character, but it also has equally important figures like Hadi Al-Amri from Fatah. And there are a few other people who are also influential in that group. So the fear in Baghdad when I left was that there would be clashes between the followers of the Sadris on one hand and the followers of the coordination framework on the other. And there were calls for counter-protests to take place in the green zone. Fortunately, those were called off quickly at the time and they didn't devolve into violence like we were worried about. But since then, there have been counter-protests. So far, everything has been okay in the sense that we haven't reached anything very violent and there hasn't been any clashes between the different protesters. And the political leaders are still calling for dialogue. But my problem looking at it as a political scientist is that I'm not worried that Muqtada Sadr one day is going to tell his followers to go attack or kill the followers of another group. I'm worried that the tension in a place that is confined in extreme temperatures, these really difficult circumstances might actually have people fighting for a completely different reason and that might devolve into violence. And since everyone in Iraq is armed, whether they're in a paramilitary group or whether they're just an everyday civilian, this could escalate really quickly. But the original system was created to ensure that the Kurds were not left out of the system, that the Sunnis were not left out of the system. The requirement for supermajorities was about keeping all the different confessional groups engaged in Iraqi politics. But as you know, there also has been an emphasis on consensus. And as a consequence, a lot of people have commented that elections don't change anything, that all the parties have sinecures, all the parties have their clients who have jobs, parties have controlled ministries for years and years, and that the government doesn't have to be responsive because it's under the stranglehold of a political system that doesn't change even after their elections. Could one make an argument that breaking apart Shia politics and having contestation for Shia politics, for Sunni politics, for Kurdish politics, is a way not only of creating a more democratic system in Iraq, but also a system that in the end is less sectarian in nature and might be the beginning of a positive trend in Iraqi politics. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about this, reflecting back on the system that was more or less imposed on us in 2003 and whether any decisions differently could have changed how sectarian Iraq became in the mid-2000s and changed the way that Iraqi political system is perceived by its people right now. 
what's the best way forward in a community that is so divided, that is so diverse. And I think ultimately one of the problems is that in the lifetime of an individual, it seems like this has been going on forever and nothing has changed. But when you look at the political development of states historically, it takes a very long time to see anything really happen and to see the outcome of a decision. Sometimes it takes multiple decades until you really see something play out. But with Iraq, there are clear mistakes that were made and there are clear ways in which the system has failed the people. But at the same time, we have to think about what's the alternative right now. And is that alternative really going to make life for everyone better? So you mentioned the Kurds. I think it's so important that you mentioned them because, you know, the KDP, the largest and most powerful Kurdish political party in Iraq, were allied with Muqtada Sadr in the beginning when he was trying to create this government of majority. And when he left government, they were much more willing to talk to everyone else. And I think that's one of the things that really bothered him. But the reason that they became less and less enchanted with Muqtada Sadr and his calls for revolution and changing the system is because he actually talked about the constitution. And to the Kurds, the constitution actually protects them in a way that no other constitution in the world has protected Kurds or given them political rights before. And so if you open this can of worms, that is the constitution, it's really something dangerous and terrifying for everyone who is not the majority. Because you have to fight for this inclusion in the constitution that was so carefully crafted and you're going to have to fight this fight again. And they are not willing to do so because the constitution is actually very good for Kurds. It lays out the groundwork for having their own region. It gives them resources. It gives them representation. It recognizes their language as an official language of Iraq. These are really big things for the Kurds. And this is why they've actually stepped aside and took a distance from this confrontation among the Shia political parties today. And I wouldn't be surprised going forward that if Muqtada Sadr keeps talking about constitutional change, that he's going to drive his former allies farther and farther away. But this is from a very high level, almost elite level view of politics, because it really impacts how political leaders want to see their people presented in society and in, represented in Iraq broadly. But when you look at the day-to-day -day life of Iraqis and you talk to any Iraqi, they will tell you that they're very sick of the sectarian corrupt system and that they just want a government in which sect doesn't matter and identity doesn't matter. And that's really the changing tone of the Iraqi street. But do I think that this was the same tone we had in 2003? Do I think this view of politics is the same one that Iraqis had back when the country was still transforming after war? No, absolutely not. Back then, the fear of sectarian infighting and violence was very, very high. And now that it's diminished, this is a very good thing. And it just heralds a change in politics where people's priorities have shifted and are now looking for something else. And I think we were on the right track, by the way, in this last election. In October 2021, the election was one that was done in heavy coordination from the international community with really an unprecedented degree of help from the UN. It surprised me the degree to which they got involved. There was a lot of money poured into these elections too. And the turnout wasn't very high. It was about 43%. But they really did usher in a minimal change in the sense that we had a lot of independents win in this election, which we hadn't seen before, although some of them are clearly partisan independents. But we also had a few political parties emerge, both running and winning in the elections, that came from the protest movement of 2019, 
which called for reform in the political system. And to me, this signaled a slow change in the political system in Iraq. So we were building essentially a small opposition that along multiple election cycles could have become something bigger and could have been able to do the kinds of reforms from within that took away the power of sectarianism and identity when it comes to politics in Iraq. But where we are today is Muqtada Sadr wants new elections. But you know what will happen? No one will go vote. And anyone who thought, oh, wow, we can change things through voting because, look, we have protesters in parliament now will think they got rid of them so quickly. What's the point of voting anyway? And what he's really done is he's dealt a blow to democratization. No one will have any more faith in elections if anyone can come and say, I don't like the results. Let's just redo them. Essentially, that's what he's saying. The most worrisome thing in the long term about Iraq is that if we do have these early elections, they're hugely destabilizing for democratization in the country. But your feeling is that the Constitution is too sensitive to change and that iterative elections over time will lead to a decline in sectarian voting, a decline in the power of purely sectarian parties and the rise of more independence if given time and space to develop. Is that accurate? Yes. And I realize, you know, to other people who know Iraq very well, it might seem overly optimistic. But look, I'm no constitutional expert, but I, I have read the Constitution and I have some basic knowledge of other constitutions. Iraq's constitution isn't a bad constitution. It enshrines a lot of important rights and it really does lay out the basis for a functioning democracy. The main issue with it is it doesn't really have consequences for violations of the constitution, particularly when it comes to election. If you don't elect a prime minister by this date, it doesn't say what will happen. So it really allows people to transgress on it very easily. That would be the main criticism. But what I will say is, I know my formula for change in Iraq is one that is heavily premised on an optimism in the non-intervention of armed actors in, in a political neighborhood or surrounding countries aren't constantly infringing on Iraqi sovereignty. You know, it's definitely not a perfect world, but I do think of the alternate route is likely to be revolution, whether orchestrated by the masses or more of a coup. And in either way, that really raises the risk for civil war. And I just don't want to see that happen. So between a system that's languishing, but possibly getting somewhere good in the next 50 years, and between a civil war that might take at least a decade to wind down, and God knows what will happen after retrenchment and authoritarianism, I would pick the former. The United States and Iran have played major roles in Iraqi politics in the past. In your judgment, are they still playing major roles? What's really interesting is that both the United States and Iran have been less hands-on in this government formation than in previous ones. And some people might say, oh, is that why it's taking so long to do anything? Is that a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? I think it's a good thing. One of the policy recommendations I always make to diplomats and the international community working on Iraq is that what 2003 created in Iraq is this belief that the U.S. and the rest of the world will jump in at any crisis in Iraq and fix it. 
And this is unrealistic. Neither the United States nor the international community jumps in to fix problems in other countries. And so this distancing is a good thing because it allows Iraq to get on its feet and address its own problems by itself. From the Iranian side, it's a little bit more complicated because Iran shares a long border with Iraq and very extensive history with the country and has ties with almost every political party in Iraq. Everyone focuses on the Shia political parties because of the shared religion, but they also have really good ties with the Kurdish parties as well. Especially the PUK. Yes, especially the PUK. And so these kinds of ties are always going to create influence, Iranian influence in the country, particularly as Iraq is very weak. And the weaker it is, the more susceptible it is to influence and intervention. But from the side of the United States, the United States interventions in Iraq have really lessened over time. And I do think both Iran and the United States are distracted more than usual in this particular government formation cycle than previous ones. I think it's a good thing ultimately because it's going to let Iraqis hash out their problems by themselves. And what we're seeing right now is the Shia hash out their problems by themselves, hopefully not in a violent way. But I mean, I could see Iran intervening down the line to push them to resolve things. When this does get resolved, would you guess that external actors will have catalyzed a resolution? Or do you think this is going to be worked out on Iraqi terms by Iraqis working together to the exclusion of external actors? I think external actors are all interested in seeing Iraqis hash this out. So, so long as this process is ongoing, it will be Iraqi. But I think if there's any significant stalls or any critical junctures in this process that might raise alarms, particularly when it comes to violence, then external actors will get involved. And as you look forward to the resolution of the current crisis, do you expect that it's going to provoke a more permanent change to Iraqi politics, or are we just biding time until the next crisis? Do you think this crisis will actually create a platform for a different kind of Iraqi politics? You know, if I actually thought that Muqtada Sadr had truly intentions for changing the system, I would be less critical of him despite his past. But he seems to be headed towards creating another government that is even less representative of the Iraqi population than the previous ones, and to frame that as some kind of success. So he's you know, received little support from everyday Iraqis who are frustrated with him, but are also scared of him because they've seen his history. And so he wasn't really able to amass this huge protest that he thought he could that would get everyone to concede to him. And now he has to save face. And the only way to do so is by saying, look, I brought new elections and that's a major change. But new elections, when most people don't want to vote anymore, means more seats for the Sadris and more seats for all the other entrenched political parties, which means a very little representation we had is going to be lost. And this is the kind of change that just spells to me the death of any hope of democratization in the country. And what's truly sad about this is that this is the outcome that will give us no violence, but it's also the outcome that's really, really bad for the country in the long term. So what's the optimistic resolution to this? What should we be hoping for? 
sadly, this is the most we can hope for. I mean, the other thing we could hope for is that Muqtada decides to put his parliamentarians back in parliament and we move on. The most hopeful thing we can get is as little change in where we were in October as possible. So moving on, just forming a government when the MPs voted in in October. And that's unlikely, but that is the best case scenario from my point of view, because I'm someone who's very averse to anything revolutionary in the country, because maybe as a jaded political scientist, I don't see many revolutions succeed. And I think if people's lives are bad now with the revolution, they're likely to be 10 times worse. Iraq's been through wars and uprisings and sanctions and all these things. Everyone understands the toll on everyday life that this kind of upheaval creates. But the status quo is so deeply depressing as well. So it sounds like the best case scenario is we go back to October and we just move forward. From my perspective, yes. We will watch and wait. Marcina Shambri, thanks very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you so much for having me. Then John, Will, and I continue the conversation and speak about the role of U.S. engagement in Iraqi politics. John, Will, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to see you again. So, John, you had a really great discussion with Dr. El-Shamri. One of the things that really caught my eye was when she was speaking about how a lighter touch on the side of the United States in Iraqi politics could possibly be better for Iraq. And I was wondering what the downsides of such an approach are and the risks that are inherent in less U.S. engagement. Well, the two obvious ones are you have less influence, so people you don't want have more influence. The second is that the Iranians play a lot of games in Iraqi politics. And in some ways, it would be like unilateral disarmament. The U.S. would cease to be involved. Iran could get more involved at a very low cost. And you could have Iraq move more firmly into the Iranian camp, or even failing that, Iranian supported actors could have more influence in Iraq. And the kinds of people who've been cooperating with the United States, including current Prime Minister Khatami, but others, would be disadvantaged. They shouldn't feel they have total protection because the United States is behind them. But if the Iranians are going to still play, that in some ways means the Americans have to in some way be playing as well. I think another question to raise is, would Iraqis notice a lighter touch from the US? And I suppose it's probably worth thinking through what does a lighter touch look like? Are we talking about less overt statements coming out of the US embassy about specific political developments? Are we talking about more general coordination with other donors? So it's sort of interventions are seen less as US interventions and more as general international interventions. But what happens if Iraqis don't notice this, and then the US is giving up its leverage, as John's saying, but people on the street still think the US has this hand in everything that happens? I think many of us have probably heard examples of theories that certainly verge on conspiracy theories about the United States having this big master plan that it's working to and everything is fitting perfectly in place. I mean, if the US is actually less involved, then maybe these conspiracy theories are still going to happen and they've just given up. I still fondly recall a former US ambassador to Lebanon telling me that he was accused of doing in Lebanese politics what the French embassy was actually doing. 
Another thing that I found intriguing is either the U.S. is accused of having too much involvement in terms of intervention or, on the other side, not doing enough, as we saw back in 2011 with Libya. Can either one of you think of a place or an example where the United States has actually had the right level of engagement, like that sweet spot? One way to think about this is even with some of the very strongest relationships that the United States has, perceptions of involvement in domestic issues can still really backfire. So if I can take us outside the Middle East for a minute, and it's probably not going to surprise you where we're going, we're going to the UK. In the run-up to the Brexit negotiation, President Obama said the UK would be at the back of the queue in negotiations with the United States after leaving the European Union. And this caused a huge furore in the UK. And so I think that the reason I raise that is that clearly we have a really good relationship between the US and UK, and yet you can still get it wrong by interfering in, in domestic politics. This is <laughs> probably, I'm sure uh, many people would disagree with me here, but I wonder if Tunisia is actually an example where the United States, at least recently, has got the level right. So I think we've spoken on, on this podcast before about Tunisia moving in really, I think, a very worrying direction under Qais Saeed. But I think there are very few people in Tunisia who would blame the US for this development. The US embassy in Tunis made very, very few comments in the run-up to the referendum that Qais Saeed held, which is, I think, a lot of human rights defenders and, and constitutional experts would say this is a power grab. But the US played a really light role. But the US continues to support civil society groups. And the hope is that these groups will play a role in shaping the direction. So maybe in some ways, this is an example, Tunisia is an example where the US hopefully has helped lay the groundwork for sources or help support political groups who can try and shape this transition going forward, but without being seen as it being a US project and US meddling that caused it. You know, listening to Will talk about this, it reinforces a thought I had, which is in some ways, the more active the politics of a country are, the easier it is for the US to find a role. I think the US has largely found the right role in Israel. There are certainly American instincts. They vary increasingly by party, but there's a sort of, I think, an understanding of what the boundaries are and an understanding that there's a bilateral relationship that transcends the politics, but the politics still matter. The U.S. isn't going to intervene in Israeli politics, but the U.S. has views and some people are on the right side of those views and some people are on the wrong side. Tunisia has had very complicated politics and the U.S. has sort of walked the line. The U.K. has complicated politics. The U.S. has walked the line. It's when the politics are largely shut down highly constrained. And people are really looking for the U.S. to put a thumb on this scale and be decisive. And when people are all looking to the U.S. to be decisive, it's hard for the U.S. to get the balance right. When the instinct is the, is the opposite, that people think, well, the U.S. might have a view, but we really have agency. We're the ones in control. I think it's much easier in that circumstance for the U.S to play a constructive role, to play the right role, to get the balance better. From a U.S. diplomatic perspective, there was a lot of interest in helping Tunisia succeed. And when it wasn't succeeding on a political level, 
I think the U.S. government felt that it's hard to go against a popular authoritarian. This came up in a conversation I had with Chris Murphy about a year ago, the senator from Connecticut. Americans don't understand the category of popular authoritarian. We understand the category of dictator, which is maintaining power by force. We understand the category of democratically elected leader, which is having power because of the consent of the governed. We don't understand the argument of somebody who is genuinely popular, but is not democratic. To us, that doesn't make sense. But I think as we look throughout the Middle East, that is a not uncommon phenomenon, and it's not one that we as a government have very good tools to engage with. That definitely makes sense. It is a disconnect between what is deemed as popular governing systems on a Western scale, and then going on the ground and not understanding why a dictator is actually popular on the ground. And one of the things we have in Iraq is in some ways we have people who say the system is miserable and corrupt, but at least these people are taking care of me. And arguably, this is a little bit like what you have in Lebanon too, is people distrust the system and they don't think the system works. But again, you get to the unilateral disarmament piece. I may not like the system. I may not believe in the system. But if I were to be totally alone, then I'd be hopeless. So you have to preserve a corrupt system, not because it works, but because the alternative of being an individual in a completely corrupt society provides no hope. And it's why Gaddafi's regime actually had a lot of support during the revolution. Like There were hundreds of thousands of people who did support the regime, not because they thought the regime was the best regime we had, but because they were afraid of the instability that was going to follow. Which did. Yeah, which did. Now, let's go back to Iraq. Because when the U.S.-led war in Iraq unfolded, the hope was more or less to turn Iraq into a model of what would it look like to have removed a dictatorship and then gone through a democratic political transition. And I was wondering if there are any parts of the Iraqi experience that you think will emerge as a positive example for the region and what you think the biggest dangers Iraq is facing right now are. So when you go around Iraq today, I think it is difficult. And you did. And I did. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I did. It is difficult to look and say this is a success. Someone described Baghdad to me as a tired city. And I think that encapsulates it quite well. That The level of dysfunction is huge from the level of traffic in the streets, potholes, the fact that so many things seem to be dilapidated and kind of run down and not working the way they should. But I think in the interview, Dr. Ashamri raised a really important point, which is to look longer term and to look at this today in 2022 versus even five years ago, three years ago, the situation was very different. And there have been really important successes. And the fact that politics are contested today, politically speaking, and not with weapons, is a massive success for Iraq. Stability has really improved a lot in the last few years. And I think that that shouldn't be underestimated. And it's tough to look at the last 20 years and the just awful things that Iraq has endured and say this is a success. But equally, I think you can say this is moving in a better direction now. 
I think another really important point is what she raised about the constitution protecting minority rights. And I think that is really important that so many of the minorities in Iraq, of which there are many, have bought into this system and view the system overall as a source of protection and not a source of marginalization. And I think that's another really key victory. I think the challenge that Iraq has is there's a timeline for political evolution. There's a timeline for the global energy transition. And you might have a several generations timeline for political evolution. But the economic context is going to change because the global energy transition is going to shape Iraq from the outside. And it seems to me that one of the real challenges they have is how do you accelerate one because you can't really slow the other. And it might be that they just run out of time to evolve their politics if it is so slow, because that global energy transition is barreling down. The oil that they can't pump now is perhaps to be of diminishing value in the future. To me, that's one of the challenges is they don't get to set all the global conditions into the future so they can overcome the political things. They have to do a political evolution at the same time as the world will go through an economic evolution. And one might undermine the other. And if I might add some other huge evolutions, demographics. Demographics are a massive problem for Iraq and a massive issue to contend with. We're talking about 700,000 young Iraqis entering the job market or trying to enter the job market every single year. And the World Bank has estimated that Iraq has to double or even triple the number of jobs it has to be able to provide for all these people. So unemployment is a massive issue, but it's not just unemployment, it's the strain on public services. And then this is happening at the same time as climate change. And I would be remiss not to talk about environmental changes here. Iraq is facing severe climate crises today. It's not some future risk. It's a risk that millions of Iraqis are enduring in their daily lives, whether that's from really debilitating dust storms that stop planes flying, stop people from being able to leave their houses, close down offices and everything, which there have been dozens of so far this year, whether it's extreme heat. And we're talking about a country where the average building wastes 90% of its energy. So when you have power cuts, houses are just instantly a furnace and almost unlivable. And that's not even to talk about the economic challenges that come with this, with droughts, with farmers losing their land and migrating to the city. So Iraq, yeah, as, as John said, it, these huge transformative trends are coming just at the same time as the political trends. And I think if it weren't for them, then maybe we could be more optimistic about the direction that politics are moving in. But with all of these added challenges on top, it's very hard to be optimistic. Economists love talking about ceteris paribus assumptions, everything being equal. But everything's not going to be equal in Iraq. Iraq is going to have to work its political transition at the same time that in many ways the externalities affecting Iraq are going to make things more difficult. Will, you mentioned demographics. And I thought it was interesting because Iraq has a unique consensus-driven system. And I was wondering if either one of you wanted to talk about what the weaknesses and the strengths of that system are. Consensus-based systems are great when you need to tweak politics and tweak policy and make small adjustments which will make improvements. Based on the trends we've just been talking about, Iraq does not need tweaks. It needs a transformational 
political agenda and strategy to get through the coming decades. And I don't know that any consensus based political system is going to produce such a bold vision that's required. And to pull back a little bit, it seems to me that the nature of politics is there are winners and losers. And if people have confidence in a political system, they think, well, I didn't win this time, but I'll win the next time. The consensus-based system is necessary. People say, well, if I don't win now, I don't have any confidence I'll ever win in the future. But it's very expensive because everybody has to be a winner. And I think natural politics mean that at some point, people have to temporarily lose until they can build a coalition to win. The challenge for Iraq is affording a consensus-based system when the environment is likely to become more constrained, when resources will get more constrained. I think it's going to be hard for Iraq to afford the luxury of letting everybody be a winner. But if people are losers, they have to have confidence that at some point in the future, they'll be winners. Otherwise, they'll work to tear down the whole system. John, Will, thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.